0: Psalm 84 is where, uh, of course, we'll be this morning. I do think for each of us, though, there is, in many ways, a desire to have clarity in the direction that we're headed. I know for uh, road trips and things, that's always certainly a desire to kind of know for sure the path that we're taking. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, it was still uh, in kind of like the 90s, I guess, when GPS wasn't super, super common, at least not as common as it's literally on everybody's phone now. Uh, But I remember like my parents planning out on like a map the path we were going to take. Uh, Usually we went on vacation to like Florida or something, so they'd always like map it out. And then when I was a little bit older, GPS was a little more commonplace. And I think all of us certainly appreciate that if you're not like directionally gifted. Uh, GPS can always be helpful, uh, or at least when it works. Um, uh, But I think, and again, all of us, even just in general, kind of have that, I want to know for sure that I'm taking the right path. And I think a really good proof point for this is I don't know if you've ever been on some sort of trip or in just maybe an area you don't know, and like you're driving and someone else is navigating, and typically it's like on the highway where it's like, all right, you know, where it's coming up, it's coming. All right, is it, uh, is it this exit or the next exit? And they're like, it's the next exit. Wait, the next like this this next exit or the next next exit? Like you're gonna miss it, ah, you know. So uh, we have that like I have to know that the turn I'm about to make is the one. Is it this one, the next one, this this one, or the next? You know, there's always that like you know conflict. If it's marriage, you know, it's beneficial. Maybe. Maybe, I don't know, typically not, but uh, we all kind of, maybe you've been in that kind of situation. And I do think uh, maybe on a shallow level, that proves that all of us do, in some sense, like to have clarity in the direction that we're heading. You can connect that thought, you know, generally, maybe to like your career uh, or just something maybe about a goal or ambition, whatever the case may be. But again, as we're looking at God's word this morning, as Christians, there should be there should be an inner desire to ensure that we're headed, quote unquote, in the right direction, to know that the path that we're on is actually one that honors, pleases, and glorifies God. Now, of course, I say, obviously, the first step to this is salvation, right? You have to have a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be able to live a life that honors him. But again, of course, it just doesn't stop there. You have, you know, sanctification, you talk about all that stuff. But the whole point is, even after salvation, we continue in our lives, uh, we should have that desire to ensure that the choices we're making are pleasing God, that we're headed, uh, quote-unquote, again, in the right direction, Maybe you've heard quotes like this. uh, The choices you make, make you. You know, we usually say this stuff to like graduating seniors, whatever. Uh, The choices you make make you. It's sort of the idea, that the formative nature of the decisions that we make. Uh, Or maybe you've heard this one. Uh, You are, this is real deep, you are who you have been becoming, right? You are right now who you have been becoming. It is an idea, again, the choices or even sometimes experiences that we have kind of influence from the past, influence who we are right now. So again, another uh, helpful quote, I guess. Um, This is one I've always found interesting. I don't know if you've heard it a man may know his future state by his present choice. A man may know his future state by his present choice. And again, it speaks to a lot of these same principles. You make choices right now that will affect where you are as you kind of head quote unquote into the future. Now, a lot of these things, again, you can take positively or negatively. Uh, this morning, though, we're kind of looking at, I say, in a positive light and the sense of Psalm 84 gives this clarification of the direction. And not just the direction, but what it looks like in our lives as believers um, to live a life that is worship centered on God. You can study passages like 2 Timothy 2, uh, Romans chapter 12, or even Ephesians 4, and so many others that make this very clear, that as followers of Jehovah God, we must have the goal, or I guess if I could be so bold as to say the ambition, we should be ambitious to be living a life that does honor, glorify, and, and again, that worships God. So if you want to take like the sermon this morning and put it in one proposition or put it in a thesis statement, maybe, um, it would be this. As people who claim to love and follow God, our greatest desire should be to live a worship centered life. As a person, as people who claim to follow God, our greatest desire should be to live a worship centered life. And of course, the question, as I said, it kind of becomes what does that look like? And that's where Psalm 84 kind of steps into the light. Psalm 84 gives us a picture of what it looks like both practically in our lives, maybe through our attitudes or our perspectives in difficulty, but it also exposes internal things uh, like sort of what we truly value, uh, what sort of things do we identify with, or what are kind of our ultimate goals, the things that we want. Those things kind of expose if we are living in the direction of a worship-centered life. This psalm will force you as a Christian to ask and really to answer this question, is God enough, for you, Now, the question is not, is God enough, right? Because we know that. The question is, and the, the question that Psalm 84 forces us to ask ourselves is, is God enough for you? Or do you find yourself often seeking for God and, right? I want God and comfort. I want God and deliverance. I want God and answers. Or are you just content with God? Psalm 84 will confront us again with a similar question that actually Job has presented with us um, as from Pastor Kenny's messages the last few weeks. The perspective is a little bit different, but really the question is actually the same thing. Do you worship God because he's God or do you worship him because of the things that he does for you? Remember, God is enough. That's not the question. But is he enough for you? As Christians, we should desire for God to be glorified, to be worshiped in the lives and in the choices we make. And again, this connects well to Psalm 84 because it dives into how how that desire should manifest itself in our lives. So the question, is God enough, is actually answered for us as we work through Psalm 84 and then as we kind of take those principles and look at our own lives. Just a little bit of background information to Psalm 84. Obviously, there's a lot of Psalms, so a lot of them have some unique context to them. Uh, Spurgeon, he actually called Psalm 84 the pearl of the book of Psalms. So in this image, if the book of Psalms is an oyster, uh, Spurgeon said that, Eighty-four is the pearl and the oyster of the Book of Psalms. That's kind of poetic, I think. Um, but he did. He called it the pearl of the song of the Book of Psalms. Uh, and most of your Bibles, you might see this uh, in front of you. Uh, there is a title or so- sort of these opening details of Psalm eighty-four, uh, and it probably says something to the extent of uh, to the chief musician upon Giddith, a Psalm four or a Psalm of the sons of Korah. Now. You may recognize the name Korah from Numbers 16. Korah is the man in Numbers 16 that led a rebellion against God and Moses. You remember uh, at the end, like the earth opens up and like swallows them? Yeah, it's that Korah. So, uh, it, that's Korah from Numbers 16. But again, these are the sons of Korah. If you study Numbers 26, it actually tells us in Numbers 26 that there was a section of Korah's family that actually didn't align with him. They they looked at the direction he was going and they were like, you know, no, nah, I'm good. You know, like they actually saw this rebellion against God and against Moses, and there were some of his sons, his family, that actually said, we see the direction you're going, and we're not we're not following suit. <laughs> so, um, and obviously, they didn't get. You know, swallowed up by the earth, so it worked out for them. Um, but again, this is interesting because if you study like First Chronicles, I think as well, there's some lineage um, connections in the Old Testament. But if you follow this family lineage, by the time of David and Solomon, this family, the sons of Korah, were heavily involved and were actually leaders of song and worship in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. Now, there's a, a handful of psalms, if you read these titles, there's a handful of psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. But again, I think even just this simple background information gives a really powerful illustration of how personal or even family history of failure doesn't have to define the life that you build for God right now. And I think that's really powerful as you look at this, this idea of a worship-centered life. You don't have to step back and say, yeah, but you don't know this. You don't know this about my family. You don't know this about my personal history. You look at this, and it does give a really, um, I think, important illustration of that idea of, in a sense, blazing your own path, but in a life worshiped and centered on God, not on you blazing your own path. So (laughs) it does still focus back on God. Um, The psalm itself, though, is actually classified as a pilgrimage psalm. So you read some of the wording, and it makes sense here. It was a psalm. Uh, Remember, these were typically sung or recited um, um, back in this culture. Um, But this one specifically was sung as people would travel towards Jerusalem for like Passover, for a festival, or just going to the temple to worship. So they would sing Psalm 84 in a sense as they approached the temple, this longing for God's presence, this, hey, we get to go worship God. We get to be in his temple. We get to be in his presence. That's really how it was used. Uh, Now, you look at the specific words, and it talks about the tabernacle, uh, which tells us it is uh, most likely written before the temple was established. Remember, there's a difference. Tabernacle was like the tent and everything, and then temple in Jerusalem. Uh, But the connection was the same as far as both represented God's presence. But I I point that out basically to say that because it was most likely written before the time that the temple was established, this psalm is at least 3,000 years old, Now, we point that out because you recognize that the truths that it presents about God are powerful, but they are timeless. These are things that people have sung for thousands of years that drew them, drew their attention not just to the presence of God, but the presence of God in their own lives. Um, R.C. Sproul actually said this about this psalm, and I think it's really powerful. While Christians today no longer need to travel to a special location to be in God's presence, right, because we have the Holy Spirit, This psalm beautifully articulates the yearning that we should have as God's children to just simply be near to Christ. So we're going to take that thought and we're going to shift our focus to Psalm 84. Uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, the C laws in this psalm actually give you the really clean breaking points to the three main thoughts. So you kind of see that at the end of verse one, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse four, there's a sea law. So your first section in verses one through four, uh, the next one uh, is in verse eight. So then it's one through four. 5 through 8 and 9 through 12 are sort of those three critical thoughts. Uh, and as we look at verses 1 through 4, what we find first, I don't know if you're a note taker, but the first point here basically is an active longing for God and his presence. An active longing for God and his presence. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 4 again. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My, my soul longeth, yea, even fainteth. For the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will still, they will be still praising thee, Selah. So verse one, just kind of a simple, clear thought. He says, how amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. That word there, kind of the idea of how blessed or beloved, how lovely. The sentiment here is actually desirable. Saying, God, how marvelous, how desirable is just your presence, and again, what makes God's presence so desirable and so lovely? It's, it's tied to who he is. The title that this psalmist gives to God here in verse 1 is, O Lord of Hosts. It's kind of the uh, O Lord of Armies, and it actually is a reference to God's power, to God's omnipotence, and really God's sovereignty. So this idea of protection and provision, but really more like providence and work, this all-sufficiency of God, this all-consuming power of God over everything. So God's presence, very clearly here, is desirable because of God. That, that's what he says. How desirable are your tabernacles? Remember, the tabernacle represents God's presence. How desirable is your presence, God, because you're God, because you're sovereign, because you're powerful, because you, work in, you, you, you are sovereign God, and your, your presence is desirable because of, simply because of who you are. So God's presence is desirable because he's God. Who God is is what makes him worthy of worship. Wanting, again, like we said before, wanting a worship-centered life starts with a humble admiration for who God is. And that comes in knowing him uh, and knowing truth, obviously. And of course, you connect that to salvation, but it is a continued pursuit of God even after salvation, so the sentiment is echoed in books like Second Peter, where he says, grow in knowledge, grow in faith, and grow in your love for God. Knowing God and humbly kneeling before him in complete adoration, that's basically the first step in living a life that is worship-centered for God, that humble admiration of God. So then look at verse two. So that's, that's just the first verse. <laughs> so look at verse two now. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. So verse one, admiration, this desire, God, I just, your presence is desirable because you are God. And as a result of that, this this admiration, it, it creates a desire to be close to him. My soul longs, my soul faints for you, God, longeth, and this idea, it's a deep yearning but it's a deep, so we think of it as like, oh, this really deep emotional, like, pit in my stomach. But it's a, it's a deep yearning that produces an action. So I kind of use this illustration. You know how, like, like, a teen guy, or even sometimes, like, my son is, like, four, and it's, this is true. It's never just complaining about being hungry. It's not just this, like, oh, I'm, I'm really hungry. He's ripping through the cupboard looking for a snack, while yearning, you know, my soul fainteth for a snack, right? Like, a teen guy doesn't just complain about being hungry, he's ripping through the fridge, or he's ripping through the cupboard while complaining about being hungry, and all the moms are like, I just organized all of that, what, you know, <laughs> and my son is four, and he does that, so, um, but it is, it's this idea, this yearning that isn't just like, oh man, God, psh." That would be so great to be with you. It's like, God, where are you? It's, it's like this, I'm driven by a yearning to be with God. He's, he's desirable, his presence, I want his presence. I long for his presence. And that longing and that yearning is producing movement in the direction towards God. Not just saying, oh, you know, I think I long for God. It's, it's the yearning that pushes you to do something about it. Desire that produces action. My heart and my flesh, he says, cry out for you. So we find admiration, uh, this admiration for God, holy humility before him, love for him. And that admiration, uh, that admiration uh, ignites this desire to just be with him, to be close to him. And that all produces the action in order to pursue him. So he says that my heart and my flesh, right, they cry out everything inside of me. Everything outside of me is just crying out for you, God. Now, the Hebrew word there is really fascinating because it doesn't really denote a specifically positive or negative emotion. Now, and I say that put it this way. One commentator sort of summarized the idea that word can mean a joyful outburst in song or a cry of pain and hunger. Like an infant crying out for its bottle, uh, it can actually communicate either one. So this is fascinating again, because what's interesting is that both are tied a cry of or a joyful song or a cry of pain are both tied to just wanting to be close to God, not someone seeking some vain blessing or deliverance or something, just someone crying out in pain or crying out in joy saying, God, I, I just want you. I just want to be with you. And I can't help but step back and say, How much has that sounded like what Kenny's been talking about in Job? This guy who is in so much pain, and he is struggling. We see this struggle, but what does he keep going back to? My redeemer, my mediator, I just just want you, God, right? We've heard that over and over through Job. And really, this psalm gives a beautiful picture of that. So admiration, right? uh, Desire and action, it's all built on the simple foundation of God. Nothing more and nothing less. Just a passion to be close to him, whether in rest and joy or in pain and trial. And then, of course, we come to verses 3 and 4. He says, Yea, the sparrow hath found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altar, so back to God's presence, O oh, Lord of hosts, my king and my God. There is a it's sort of a humorous but a joyful envy of the birds who have the privilege of building their homes and raising their young and the very presence of God himself. Remember we said this is a a pilgrimage psalm. So these are people who are traveling some sort of distance to get to the temple and they're, they're there or they're getting there and they're already thinking about leaving and they're like envying these birds that get to build their nests, their homes in the very presence of God. So sort of this funny, joyful, uh, joyful envy, but it is a picture, of course. And as they look ahead to leaving, they're just like, oh, man, like how cool would it be to just live in the tabernacle, to just like build our lives in the tabernacle of God, and the temple of God, in his presence, like, ah, the birds get to do it. How come I don't get to do it? Now, it's not actual envy, right? It's this joyful image envy, um, but it is to just live in the very presence of God. Man, how incredible would that be? And we can't help in our time to step back and say, what a blessing we have that so many throughout history have not had, right? We have the Holy Spirit as God's people in us at all times. And I just I think even in my own life, how easily and casually I cast that aside like a dry doctrine. Oh man, yeah, I have the Holy Spirit because I'm a Christian. You have people for thousands of years that were like, yearning for God's presence. They would travel days and weeks and months just to visit the temple for a brief time to remember the temple represented God's presence. And we have the Holy Spirit now, and we certainly at times don't yearn the way that they did. And I I just wrote it this way. As believers, again, we do literally exist with the Holy Spirit in us. His presence dwells with us. And how foolish and careless are we to not just revel in his presence uh, in that way within our lives each day. He mentions the sparrow and the swallow. Uh, many commentators note these are, these are tiny birds, and some have actually noted, even in like the ecosystem, how basically insignificant both, both of these birds were, like little tiny sparrow, little tiny swallow, these really insignificant animals. And yet what we find is these quote-unquote insignificant creatures find peace rest and security in the presence of God. He even mentions one raising her young, her children in the presence of God. Uh, And then you see this personal touch, right? What does he say? My God, my King. You see this intimate, personal connection to God himself. It's a powerful statement image, isn't it though? That in having God and having his spirit, we truly do have all that we need. And it begs the question, why on earth would you want anything else? How could you want anything else? The initial step into living a worship centered life is placing a humble priority on God's presence within our lives and chasing it with passion, with humility and with consistency. And he says, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. So it's this, this lockdown. I'm dwelling. I'm locked into your presence, God. And he says, they will be still praising thee. There is this constant praise, this constant worship, the people that live and dwell in the presence of God, that live a worship-centered life, uh, to kind of tie that idea in. And it forces us to ask the question, what does your pursuit of God look like? Are there stipulations or are there exceptions to your pursuit of worshiping God? Is worshiping God just sort of like the end goal itself? Or are you worshiping God because you want to get something from him? Now, I, you kind of think about how to illustrate some of these things because a lot of it we hear. And I think a lot of that, again, I'm not like you're not shocked by some of these statements. But we wonder, what does it look like? And, and what does my pursuit of God look like? And what is it supposed to look like? And I kind of look at my own, maybe my own life, uh, in in a, maybe a practical sense. And I, I kind of thought about the time that I was pursuing my my not then wife, but my current wife, who was not my wife then. And I kind of think back to Bethany and that that sort of pursuit <laughs> of her and just trying to like beg her to spend her life with me, you know. Um, but you go, I kind of think back to that time. We were friends, we kind of knew each other, uh, and then through different stuff, we were hanging out in a group of friends, so uh, we spent, we got, we were friends in different ways, sort of like casually, whatever. Um, we had similar groups, or a similar group of friends at one point, so we were like hanging out with each other in a group of friends, so I got to know her that way, uh, and as I got to know her more as a friend, uh, I, I wanted that group to shrink uh, very quickly. Um, I, I wanted to just be with her. I just wanted to talk to her. I wanted to get to know her. I didn't want all these other people uh, distracting her from moi. You know, <laughs> I wanted the group to shrink. I just wanted to be close to her. Just talk to her. I just wanted to get to know her. And as we talked and we spent more time together, um, I, I liked her a lot, just to say the least. And uh, I, I told her you know, through a series of things. But I did tell her. I just was like, hey, you're cool. Um, anyway, I won't go into all the details. I didn't say it that way. It was much better, trust me. But I don't have time. But I, it, it produced this action. Like, I got to know her. We spent time together. I told her that I was interested. And she didn't, you know, slam the door. So that was a blessing. Um, but even after that, right, we continued to talk. We continued to, you know, I'd ask her on dates, and we'd spend time together. And I liked her. Again, I told her I shared that with her, so we started dating. We met each other's families. But again, we continued, even as we dated. I got to know her even better and better, talking to her, getting to know her, and fell in love with her, probably quicker than she fell in love with me. Uh, but I'm, I'm, hey, I'm humble enough to admit that, okay? So, uh, but, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but the whole point, right, I'm pursuing, and this knowledge produced this love, and this love produced... Uh, Uh, right this the more time that we spent the more time that we hung out and talked it drove me to action I bought a ring right and I got down on a knee and I begged her to marry me and she said yes thankfully Um, but it is again you go to this you get married right and then we continue to grow and continue to learn continue to work through conflicts together building a family and a home but even in that we're still getting to know each other we're still learning now I use that as a maybe a silly but an, 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 an illustration as I got to know her better, I really just admired her, and I still do, um, and that admiration drove me to pursue a closer walk with her, just her, no one else, right? I wasn't, I wasn't feeling out options, not that I had them, but, uh, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'll see if this, I'll kind of keep a couple things going and see, like, I wanted to be close to her, I wanted to be friends, and, you know, just, I just wanted to be with her, I wanted to know her Uh, to the extent even sometimes to the loss of other relationships, but I was willing to pursue her. There were no stipulations placed on my time with her when we were dating, and I wasn't ever looking for or even willing to make excuses to not be with her. Now, again, I'm not like over-spiritualizing my pursuit of Bethany, but I, I look back at that, and what I have to do is go, okay, is that even kind of the way that I chase after God? Am I just like, I just... I just want to know you. I just want to be closer. I, I just just want to be a little bit closer. I just want to spend a little bit more time with you. Am I, does my pursuit of my wife even kind of reflect the pursuit of God? And that's where we kind of step back and say, what does your pursuit of God look like? Does it reflect the passion and love and admiration that we find in Psalm 84? Because it's easy to look at some of that information and go, oh man, that guy, man, he is just He's on fire. You know, like we're like, that's cool. But you need to step back and look at that fire and that passion and say, maybe where do I see it somewhere else? And does that even in 1% reflect the way that I chase after the God that died on the cross for my soul? The God that loves me and takes care of me and protects me and provides for me. and and even the most difficult, painful things. And that's actually a perfect thought as we move into the next section, right? What does your pursuit of God look like? Does it reflect the passion and love that we find in 84? Are you seeking God as a means to an end, or is it just having him? Is that the desire itself? And the rest of the psalm actually explains and helps answer that question for us. So the first section, one through four, this active longing for God for pursuing passionately his presence. And then secondly, a joyful cooperation with God and his sovereignty. Look at verses five through eight. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee and whose heart are the ways of them who passing through the valley of Bacah make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. So verse 5, right, he says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of them. That word strength there, it actually, you could say safety or confidence, but it actually implies like security, And how, how does the person have security or confidence, safety in God? And he says in the second part of that verse, "...in whose heart are the ways of them." the word ways it's actually like highway or like a paved road it's a highway and this is actually really fascinating imagery he says that blessed is the man right whose whose security is in god and what does that look like in his heart he has highways that lead him to god's presence uh, if you were here on wednesday can he use this um, this illustration talking about our, our church wide study of anxiety. And he put it this way he said that as we're studying on Wednesday nights, right, with Open Church, as we're studying anxiety as a church, this isn't uh, a, a diet or like a quick fix. I'm going to do this seven week program and ba ba boom boom boom, I'm going to be a pro at anxiety. Uh, he said this isn't a diet, it's not a quick fix program. Uh, and he said this the end goal is to build new paths of thinking in our minds that will lead us to God whenever fears come up. Now, I'm taking that and saying that's exactly the image that the psalmist is using. He's saying, blessed is the man whose strength, whose security, and, and, and uh, you know, that um, sense of security, and that sense of safety, confidence is in God. What does that look like? he has paved ways in his mind and in his heart that always lead his attention to God no matter what happens. Now this thought connects to the next verse in verse 6. So the person that finds strength, safety, security, confidence in God, because no matter what happens in their life, they have already built and paved roads that lead their hearts and minds back to God. And this is in the midst of difficulty, not like, oh, I'm delivered and bam, here we go. Because look at verse six, he says, who passing through They're in the valley of Bacah, this valley of weeping of pain, but while passing through it, what, what does it say? It makes it a well, the rain also filleth the pool. A valley of Bacah, it was a place of difficulty or pain, or even just a reference to some dry, lonely, arid place. It was more or less a place of need. So he says that God's presence makes even the most arid, barren, painful experiences into a spring of life. He says the rain fills the pools. It like overflows this pools or this stream. Uh, Now we take this and what we like to think of it as like, you know, I'm like, I'm like in the desert, like water, you know, that like classic dying in the desert scene. And then you like look up and it's like a well and you like cobble and all this well, this well. Okay. Yes, that's the image, but it's actually much more like, than that, okay? I'm going to take you back to your childhood for some of you. Uh, For me, you know Tom and Jerry, right? The greatest cartoon of all time, by the way. Uh, That's not my notes, but it's important, okay? Um, You know how, like, Tom, it's the cat and mouse, you know? Tom would chase Jerry, and Jerry would, like, jump up on a fire hydrant, and Jerry's like, you know, Tom is like, a bat, and he's like, And then right before he hits, you know, Jerry, like, woohoo! and he like smacks the fire hydrant and then it's like psh, psh, and he like blasts across the room or i guess the street if you have a fire hydrant in your house that's a problem or you just have a lot of fires maybe uh, but you know like the fire hydrant just the water and it's like psh, blows him away okay it's a little less violent but that's actually the image that it's trying to paint god is not this like conveniently placed well in the middle of a desert. He's like, you're in this valley of pain and weeping, and God's presence becomes this like, you know, it's like a, a hose burst, and you're like, ah! Okay, again, you would just be like, ah, oh, you know, in this case. But, but it's, it's this presence, this idea of like this rushing, nonstop, never-ending source of life and water and sustenance but remember the context. It's in the middle, while passing through the Valley of Baca, God becomes this life, this unending life spring of water, of peace, of, of just life, actually, is the word. So, again, you take this image... It's this uh, less, again, less violent, (laughs) but you are in a valley. You're in a valley of weeping, a valley of pain, a valley of need, a valley of fear, whatever. But you, remember the previous verse, you've built this road in your mind to keep your heart and your focus on God. In the midst of it, his presence, God's presence, then becomes this gushing, overflowing well, this fountain, this spring of water that just isn't stopping while you're in the valley. Then look at verse 7. He says, "So now, still in the valley, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God." This person is in this terrible valley, but now, despite being still in the valley, they're moving from strength to strength. The word, it's like this military strength, it's it's like victor victorious, victory. So now this person still in the valley with God's presence, is progressing. There's victory after victory. Again, still in the valley, but there, there's progress. Even if it's slow, there is still progress through it. Why? Because they've built pathways in their hearts and their minds to God. And in this valley, I'm going to keep my focus on God no matter what happens. And his presence becomes this source of progress through something. Now, Again, you look at a lot of this, um, verse seven, we just read, they appear before God in Zion. They are sustained by God's presence in the midst of this valley of life. Uh, And I want to kind of, this similar connection to like Psalm 23. It's one that I think a lot of people know, right? Uh, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me right? I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm not going to be overwhelmed. Why? Because God, you're with me. He says, your your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They guide me through what I'm going through. And then this protection and guidance, he says, and then in the next verse, thou preparest the table before me, where? In the presence of mine enemies. So you're providing for me and taking care of me. And my enemy is looking at me from across the table, And then he said, you anoint my head with oil. And then what? My cup is just filled, just enough. (laughs) No, that was awful, right? It's overflowing. My cup overfloweth. Why? Because in a valley, God is with me. In the presence of my enemies, God is with me. This person is more than okay. They're growing and they're progressing because their heart and mind have been pulled to God despite what's going on. God's promise is greater than deliverance. It is him, his presence in the midst of whatever he has sovereignly done or allowed. And we have to say there is no greater or more comforting truth than that. We shouldn't seek, uh, or we should only seek God. And then you have verse 8. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. This is my heart's greatest cry and prayer. To have God, just God. I'm in the valley of Baca. I want to build paths that, excuse me, that lead him, that lead me to him, that lead my heart and my mind to him. That no matter what happens, I want to move from strength to strength. I want to move. I want to progress through this at whatever pace, but basically being sustained by God. And then verse eight is this: Hear my cry, hear my prayer. This is my heart and my soul's deepest longing, God, to just be with you. This is where it hits real life, okay? Do we value comfort more than we value God's sovereignty, right? God's presence is, it's the spring of life in the middle of the desert. But do we value our comfort more than we value God's sovereignty? And how do you answer that? And really a simple way to figure it out is to ask yourself, when any level of difficulty arises, do your trials, your struggles, or do your inconveniences control you or define you? Like, I identify more with my struggles than I do with my God. When I'm in the middle of something, it and again, sometimes there are things that consume us, understand. And this is, again, where I think Job is a really helpful picture. Because you see him in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this pain. But what does he keep doing over and over and over? Crying back out to God. So, again, this isn't this perfect you know, I just respond perfectly every time something happens. But it is the idea that no matter what's going on, my focus is here, or am I willing to just identify with the problem that I'm in? Do I allow my current situation to dictate my attitude, to dictate my perspective, or to dictate my desires? Do you find yourself saying things like, well, I wouldn't be this way if God hadn't, Or uh, maybe I wouldn't be struggling with this if so-and-so hadn't. Or I was given such-and-such diagnosis, and therefore I, right, is something temporal, like a hardship or a discomfort, given control over you? Does that become your identity? Or, like we see here, have you built paths in your heart and in your mind that always lead you back into the presence of God? The spring and the well of life in life's most difficult or painful valleys. And this is where I think this critical question, we're actually going to come back to this. But do you have a desire to just get out? Do you have a desire to just, I just want a break? Or do you desire only to walk through it with your Savior? We're going to come back to that because it's actually a really critical closing thought. Um, but this is a question you need to hold on to. Is deliverance, is deliverance or comfort your lowercase g God? Or is the peace of God's presence what you solely chase after? So we see an active longing for God and His presence in one through four, a joyful cooperation with God and His sovereignty in five and verse uh, through eight, and then lastly, this last section, a humble spirit before God and His holiness. Uh, look at verse uh, chapter eighty four. I'm sorry, Psalm eighty four, um, verses nine through twelve. Now, behold, O God, our shield. And look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. So 9 and 10 again, Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. And you see even in the next verse that his focus actually shifts to eternity. So we talk about God's presence and wanting to be in it. We look at this life and say, oh, this valley, and I can cry out to him. He's with me in this valley. And then he shifts his complete focus to eternity. The word shield obviously points us to the ideas of protection and deliverance. But the question becomes, protection and deliverance from what? What's fascinating is that the word here for anointed is actually the Hebrew word for Messiah. And again, many commentators note that this is a clear allusion to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to shield us from God's wrath. And then he goes on to say that a day in your presence, God, is a greater joy and it is more desirable than a thousand days in any other pleasure or luxury. I am overflowingly content to serve and to worship with you uh, with no care for this world's greatest luxuries. So again, fascinating because he says in verse 10, right? A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Uh, And it's this simple thought, like a moment, just one moment with you, God, is better than like an eternity without you. And I think, isn't that such a beautiful image? Because as believers, we never have to concern ourselves with are we going to get to be with God? We don't, we're not with him just now, we're him for all with him for all of eternity. So it's a really kind of interesting contrasting statement, but his whole point is I value you and your presence more than I would value even living forever. It's not literally like a thousand days, but it's this idea of like just eternity, this like infinite number of number of days. I would rather just be with you for a moment than not be with you for eternity. Of course, through Christ, we have eternity with him. But we, again, kind of take that, how marvelous is it to know that as a child of God, this is not something we have to worry about. We will have God's presence in heaven for eternity, and we can't have it right now, obviously through salvation and Jesus Christ. Uh, From the moment that we accepted Christ by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit and from the grace of God himself, Christ as our Redeemer has shielded us from God's wrath and leads us as our mediator into the very presence of God. This presence will be enjoyed eternally in heaven. But again, don't forget that his presence is a part of your life right now through the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you. And then he says in verse 11, For the Lord, the Lord God is a sun and shield. He repeats that shield idea. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Son is the idea of provision, but it actually points to this idea of life. The son, you are this eternal source of life. So he's the source of all good. Like James 1, every good and every perfect gift is from above. So God is the source of all good he 's also a shield he 's a defense from all evil. This is another principle echoed in first Corinthians ten, right where he says that God will not suffer you uh, to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. There is this sense of protection uh, out of everything, but again, sun and shield he 's a source of all good and he's he 's he's the defense from all evil so God provides what is good, and he defends from what is evil. And then it says he gives grace and glory. So like in verse 6, in this temporal life, God is a spring of life. Uh, He gives us grace to walk and to endure anything and everything as we worshipfully seek his presence. And then you say grace, you think about grace in this life and then glory. It's actually a reference to eternity, that as God's children, when we die, he glorifies us to heaven to be with him for eternity. And again, this is kind of a a really interesting image that our entire existence is Right Now and in all eternity, our entire existence is surrounded by God himself. He is a sun and shield. He gives grace in this life. He gives glory in the next. He is around us. He surrounds us. His presence is right there. Now, some of this you're like, okay, we get it. But this is all so important to understand the shift in perspective to eternity. Because how many times have you heard people use the end of verse 11 to justify seeking after some temporal thing. So what does the end of verse 11 say? No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now this is critically important. Remember that this entire section, the focus has shifted to eternal. Even when he mentions temporal things in this section, it only has a contrast. It's a contrast to how wonderful the eternal things of God are. Why point this out? And again, this is important because the end of verse 11 has nothing to do with this life. God's greatest blessing to us is not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what verse 11 should point us to. You can do nothing to earn God's merit or favor outside of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what's the point? He says, God will not withhold himself from those who walk in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or those who have the righteousness of God laid upon them by Jesus Christ. It is because of Christ that we can walk per- perfectly, or I should say, peacefully with God. You don't have to turn there, but this is an, a sentiment echoed in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Some of you, this will be a familiar passage. Therefore, Romans 5, 1 through 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. So you see grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory, of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations work patience, and patience experience, and experience. Hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. It's interesting. We see peace with God through Christ and you see these themes echoed of grace and glory, but it's through Christ before God. Paul draws our attention to Christ in that situation as our our status is tied to Jesus Christ. But again, it's really a very similar image here. And again, coming back to this idea, using this psalm, using Psalm 84, specifically the end of verse 11, to preach a spiritualized materialism is irreverent, it's naive, and it is short-sighted. This entire psalm, remember, every verse of this psalm, Has been only about the beauty of God's presence, the spring of life that is God's sovereignty, and the eternal blessing of serving Him now and dwelling with Him forever. And for some reason, we think that the inspired psalmist would abandon all of that just to tell us that we could get a temporal relief or some temporary blessing in an earthly trial. Now, it doesn't mean that, like we said, God's presence is the blessing in the midst of trial but don't make verse 11 about temporal things because the end of verse 11 is supposed to draw our eyes back to God. Don't make the mistake, and I say this as an encouragement, don't make the mistake of shifting your focus downward when the entire psalm, the entire psalm is meant to draw our weary and weeping eyes to a magnificent, holy, praiseworthy God. Now, this is where we walk into the last verse, right? Verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. The blessing of God's presence, of living a worship-centered life, comes simply in anchoring yourself to him. I kind of put it this way. if If you want a summarized version of Psalm 84, if you're like, just... Give me the short version of Psalm 84. You really only need to read, I mean, read the whole thing. <laughs> but if you're in a hurry, read verse 1 and read verse 12. So let's just do that. Summarized version of Psalm 84 How amiable, how desirable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. And then verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. How wonderful. How lovable, how desirable God is your presence. The greatest blessing comes in simply just anchoring my soul to you. That's Psalm 84. You say, why didn't you just do that at the beginning? Because I needed to fill more time. Uh, <laughs> but 1 and 12 give you the exact summary of exactly that this psalm is talking about. God's presence is d- to be desired because he's God. Now anchor yourself to him. The end. <laughs> that's, that's Psalm 84. Now, in conclusion, we're going to come back to a question that we asked in the beginning. Is God enough for you, or do you always seem to need God and? God and something else. And I think even most of us would say, well, I do want God. I don't, you know, most of us wouldn't say that. But maybe we say, I do want God, but do you always seem to want God and comfort? Do you always seem to want God and understanding? Do you seem to always want God and deliverance? If you remember a few weeks ago, Kenny actually addressed this in Job. He said, are you seeking God or are you just seeking your answers? I don't know if you remember that. Are you seeking God or are you just seeking your answers? And again, I'm taking that and and adding to it. Are you seeking God or are you just seeking the things that you want through him? Is God just a means to an end for you? And again, how do I know? And we just need to read back through Psalm 84. Are hardships in your life opportunities to grow, to create new paths in your heart and mind that lead to God? Or when any level of stress or difficulty comes, is it given control over your emotions? Does that trial become your identity? Does it define and consume who you are, or does it justify or excuse the things that you do? I think, again, you can take this in a lot of directions, but It really forces you to do a lot of self-reflection, to look at yourself and say, again, what does my pursuit of God look like, and does it reflect the passion and the love that this psalm does for pursuing God? When in the valleys of life, uh, or when the valleys of life cease to become springs of God's grace, that's when we need to consider if we've missed the point. Now, we say that not as a reprimand, right? Because there are, uh, and I would say, many of you that we maybe I know of, or a lot of you may be going through things that I'm not aware of. And it's not to say, well, get over it. <laughs> that's, that's, remember, okay, that would be totally against everything that Kenny's talked about through Job, right? Dealing with the sufferer. The point is not get over it. The point is remember God's with you. And that is an encouraging thing regardless of what we're dealing with. Um, and, and some of you, you know, I thought about, I'm going to make a statement And I I thought about trying to explain it, but I think for most of us, if you've experienced it, your mind goes immediately to an experience. I'm going to read this twice. One of the sweetest experiences in life that you will ever have is not being lifted out of a valley, but in looking up and realizing that God is walking with you through it. I'm going to read that again because I need you to just soak it in, okay? One of the sweetest experiences that you will ever have in this life is not being lifted out of a valley, but in looking up and realizing that God is walking with you through it. Study Psalm 23, study Psalm 46, study Psalm 84, <laughs> and you see that the, really the sweetest experience is knowing that God is with you. Now, why do I say that? Does that sound appealing to you? (laughs) Like, "Eh, I'd rather be delivered. (laughs) I'd rather be, yes, oasis, out of the desert into the oasis. Now, I'm not saying we don't struggle with that, okay? Because we all have had that feeling. But I want you to understand does walking with God through something sound more appealing than being delivered from it? Because if we value deliverance more than we value God, it tells us that he is not our greatest desire, but our temporal comfort Our temporal comfort is an idol. It's something that's keeping us from enjoying the presence of God in the middle of what we're suffering through. A worship-centered life is a life lived moment by moment, celebrating God's holiness, resting in God's sovereignty, rejoicing in God's provision, praising God and blessing, trusting God in trials, and walking with God. God through all of it. There's a quote in closing I want to share. Uh, Al- Alexander McLaren, he was a Scottish preacher in the 1800s. He said this: "Because, because God is who He is. Because God is who He is. It is the highest wisdom to take Him for our true good and never to let Him go. Just have to ask: Is that your perspective? Is God?" God's presence, your highest good, and is it something that you refuse to let go of? And I do think that's a question that we are confronted by in Psalm 84. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we love you so much, and the question in our life is not, um, are you desirable or are you worthy? God, that as we've seen, as Kenny has worked through Job, as we see in, in all over your word, but even as we see this morning in Psalm 84, that you are to be desired, God, that you are worthy of our worship, you're worthy of our praise, you're worthy of of all of it. And I pray that you would confront each of us, my own heart as well, um, to step back and to ask if my praise, if my pursuit, if my passion for you reflects a heart that truly loves and values you. I pray that you would challenge each of us as individuals, um, but even as a church, God, that our church would long for To love and to value your presence, to seek it in our lives, to seek it in our homes, to seek it in our church, God, so that we can reach uh, our community, our families, our friends, that we can reach anybody uh, through influence for your honor and for your glory. Lord, you are holy, you are to be praised, you are to be served, and we just pray that you would confront us with that this morning. We love you so much, in Jesus' name, amen.